back to Isaiah chapter 60, uh, page 748 in the church Bibles. And as you're doing that, let me say if you're, you're new to our church, it's probably worth mentioning that we've been steadily working our way through uh, this Old Testament book of Isaiah on Sunday mornings since 2011. Uh, we've not done it in a winter. Uh, we've been doing chunks at a time and other little shorter series in between, then coming back to Isaiah again and again. And we're currently th working through the last chunk of the book, uh, chapters 56 to 66, in a little series that we're calling Waiting for a New World. Well, before we turn to Isaiah chapter 60, let's pray to God and ask for his help. Our Father God, we live uh, in a time when people are gathering around them, uh, teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. People are turning their ears away from the truth and turning aside to myths. And Lord, we ask that you would guard us from this. Uh, we pray that you'd speak to us today through your word, uh, by your spirit. We pray that you'd show us more and more uh, of what you are like, uh, what we are like, and therefore how much we need of you. We ask this that we might know you more and love you more and depend on you more and be more fruitful in serving you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to begin by asking you a question. Uh, and the question is this. How do you feel about the future? How do you feel about the future? Maybe you're at a stage of life uh, where the future holds nothing but opportunities. Uh, you have your whole life ahead of you. You have lots of options. Uh, nothing is set in stone at this stage. Maybe you have less of your life ahead of you, but the future still holds nothing but opportunities. You are basking in the perpetual sunset that is known as retirement. On the other hand, maybe some of us are at a stage in life where the future is uncertain. Uh, we're perhaps dreading what the future holds. We have more questions than answers. There's anxiety at every turn. I have to be honest with you that even in the past few weeks, as I've seen news stories, I myself have had concern about the future. I'm sure I'm not the only Christian who feels the weight of condemnation behind the One Scotland campaign that we've seen on bus stops and in newspapers and on phone boxes. What does the future hold for Christianity in Scotland with these kinds of messages in the public realm? Uh, then there was the National Geographic article from China uh, last week uh, with the headline, Same-Sex Mouse Parents Give Birth Via Gene Editing. Thanks to gene editing, two mouse mothers birthed the pup in this photograph. You've got to ask yourself where such scientific experiments are going to take us next. And then there was the news this week that in Canada, uh, cannabis has leg been legalized for recreational use. Canada is the second country now to do this. One can only imagine the health problems and the societal problems that lie ahead for that country and what countries will follow in legalizing cannabis. All of this in our news recently, and I haven't even mentioned the word Brexit. 
The danger is we can look at all the things around us in this world, all the visible things, and it can shake our confidence in what God is doing. It can shake our confidence in the future that God holds in his hands. We need a reminder of the unseen things that God is doing and the things that God is yet to do. And so with all these concerns and uncertainties, the light of Isaiah chapter 60 shines brightly to us. Isaiah chapter 60 is a glorious chapter in the scriptures. I hope you got the sense of that as Maeve read it for us earlier on. It is positive. It is full of hope in so many ways. And it stands in stark contrast to chapter 59, which comes before it. Isaiah 59 is a sobering chapter. Isaiah 60 is spectacular. If you were here with us last week, you might remember that Isaiah 59 paints a sad picture of how God's people sink so low because of their sins and how this created a barrier between them and God and how they find themselves in misery as a result. Isaiah 59 too said, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. So God had to bear his arm. He had to show his strength and come to his people's aid. He had to do what his people couldn't do for themselves. He had to save them. And this morning we come to Isaiah 60, which is the first of three chapters that form the centerpiece of this last chunk of Isaiah that we're looking at. You see, chapters 60 to 62 show Israel's final destiny as the restored people of God in whom the reality of God's salvation is displayed to all the earth. But the question is, how will God's glory be revealed? Well, that's what we're going to find out this morning as we look at Isaiah chapter 60. And the first thing that we can see is that God is going to reflect his glory through his people. He's going to reflect his glory through his people. We see that in verses 1 to 9. You can move the slides on. That's great. Thank you. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Verse 2 says, But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. And then verse 9 says, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Three times in these nine verses, we see that God has given his people a beauty that is not their own, but his. It's God's glory that rises upon them. It's God's glory that appears over them. It is God who has given them a splendor. The darkness of chapter 59 has given way to God's glorious light, God has defeated his people's sin and, and their unrighteousness, and now he proclaims light to the nations, all by his gracious doing. He's calling them in verse 1 to arise and shine. In other words, to get up and embrace the glory that is theirs in God. But what is God's glory? It's one of those Christian words that's often used, but it's really important that we understand what it means. God's glory, in short, is God's presence. For example, the glory of the Lord appears in the cloud in the wilderness when the people complain about lacking food and when God provides manna back in Exodus. 
When the Ark of the Covenant is completed, the glory of the Lord is the thing that descends and fills the tabernacle. When Moses asks to see God's glory, God responds, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Later, it's the glory of the Lord that fills the temple, and it is the glory of the Lord that fills the sanctuary in Isaiah 6, when the seraphim are crying, holy, holy, holy. Throughout the Old Testament, God's presence, God's very own face is described by this word, glory. And the incredible thing about these verses this morning is that God does not hold on to his glory. Rather, he chooses to reflect his glory through Israel. It rises upon them. It appears over them. This is what God promised back in Isaiah chapter 4. Initially, in chapter 2, Isaiah tried to seek her, uh, sorry, Israel tried to seek her own glory uh, by associating with the other powerful nations uh, round about her. But this ended in humiliation for her. But then in chapter 4, incredibly, God promises that he would somehow share his glory with them. Chapter 4 says, In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. And what we have here in verses 1 to 9 is the climax, the fulfillment of that promise. God's glory rises upon his people. It appears over them. But again, we want to ask, why does God reflect his glory through Israel? What is his purpose in sharing his glory with his people? as it were. We know from uh, chapter 42 that God won't share his glory with idols. But what is his purpose here in sharing it with Israel? Well, these verses make it very clear to attract the nations. Look with me down at verse 3. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Verse 4, lift up your eyes and look about you all assemble and come to you, your sons from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. And verse 5, the wealth on the seas will be brought to you, to you the riches of the nations will come. Distance is no object for this great homeward march for the children of Zion. They're coming from afar, they're even being carried, even crossing seas. And notice that they're not coming empty-handed. They're bringing their wealth, as we see in verse 5, as an expression of their thanks to their God. Verse 6, they're bringing herds of camels and gold and incense. Verse 7, they're bringing flocks and rams, such as their thanks to their God. There's more. In verses 8 and 9, we see that they're coming from the very ends of the earth. Verse 9 says, surely the islands, Luke 
to me. The, the prophet envisages a, a, sea, a, a fleet of ships on the sea. They look like clouds or a flock of doves. This is the God for whom the nations have been waiting. And notice with me what they're coming to do. Verse 6 says that they are proclaiming the praise of the Lord. And verse 9 says they are coming to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Make no mistake, uh, they're not coming uh, because of Israel herself. Israel herself is not attractive. All that we saw in verse 59 makes that crystal clear. No, you see, the nations of the world will come to God because He has put His glory on display through His people. He is, after all, as this passage tells us, the Holy One of Israel. He has done something for His people that His people could not do for themselves. He saved them, and He's caused His glory to be reflected through them to the nations. The bloody hands and the guilty fingers and the lying lips and the wicked mouth that we saw in chapter 59 are no more. Instead, God will take his sinful people and make them attractive to the nations because he has set his glory upon them. The painful tragedy is when we as God's people, uh, through our words and through our lives, fail to reflect God's glory to the nations. When we make him appear less than he is the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. You see, when the nations of the earth see the God of the Bible reflected through us as he really is, through the character of his people, uh, the false gods of this world, whether secular or religious, will be shown to be the worthless idols that they really are. And then the nations will come flocking to the Lord God from even the most remotest places. So God's glory will be revealed through his people and in doing so, the nations will be drawn to him to proclaim his praises. But I want, to know, I want you to notice the second way that God's glory will be revealed from this passage. God's glory will be revealed as he fulfills his promise to Abraham. We see this in verses 10 uh, down to 14. You might recall that when God called Abraham, uh, later to be called Abraham, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, we read this, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, for your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is known as the Abrahamic covenant. A covenant is a type of agreement between two parties. And in verses 10 to 14 in our passage this morning, Isaiah focuses on this Abrahamic theme by saying that those who bless him will be blessed and those who curse him will be cursed. This is what verses 10 to 14 focus on as the nations serve God's people and as the nations submit to God's people. How do they serve God's people? How do the nations serve God's people? Well, we see the nations rebuilding the walls there in verse 10, not because they must, 
but to express thanks to God and to his people through whom God's light had reached them. Notice in verse 10 that foreign kings will serve or minister to God's people. What a turnaround that is. Foreign kings used to parade through the broken walls of Jerusalem, humiliating God's people who lived there. Yet in Isaiah's vision, foreign kings will serve God's people. Notice too in verse 11, the gates will stay open. Sometimes this is to do with there being such security that they don't need gates, but that's not what's envisaged in verse 11. It's to do with the procession of wealth that is continually streaming through the gates. Uh, This is a picture of the honor and the blessing that God's people will receive for God's sake. Verse 12 says that the glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the fir, the cypress together to adorn my sanctuary. Lebanon crops up several times in the book of Isaiah, and it's usually a reference Uh, when it does crop up, to human pride. But here, Lebanon's timber is going to be used in the worship of God. Then in verse 14, we see this great reversal in Israel's fortunes. The children of the people who oppressed Israel now bow down to them, as do all the people who despised Israel. They come to honor Israel. But Israel's honor... Uh, like Israel's glory, is a reflected honor. Notice how at the end of verse 14, the honor is all of God's. This is the Lord's city, the Lord's Zion. Not everyone is going to come through those gates, though. You see that in verse 12. Look with me. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. This has been Isaiah's message throughout his book. We've got two choices about God. Uh, Those who recognize him to be the Lord are invited to participate in this celebration. But those who don't will perish and will be utterly ruined. You see, in all the glory and all the joy and all the praise and all the triumphal procession of this passage, we must not lose sight of these words. A photograph will appear on the screen just now that some of you might recognize. It's an infamous speed camera on the Kerstorfen Road. Some of us have discovered to our cost that we must submit to this camera whether we like it or not. If we don't, then we expect a a fine and points on our license. Uh, Similarly, when it comes to God, uh, the people of this world will either submit willingly to Him or unwillingly. If you choose the first option, you get to join in with the praise of the nations forever. If you choose the second option, verse 12 says you will perish. Again, This is also forever. Punishment in hell is eternal. And God's glory is on display far more obviously than any fluorescent stripes on the back of a speed camera. And maybe you've seen God's glory reflected in the person who brought you here today. 
Maybe it was reflected in the person who gave you a coffee outside. And there will come a day when Isaiah 60 will no longer be a vision, it will be a reality. And for some of us, that will lead to eternal rejoicing. And for others, it will lead to eternal ruin. In this church, we believe that Jesus Christ came into this world so that you don't have to perish, but have eternal life. And you can talk to the person who brought you, uh, or myself, or somebody on the prayer team afterwards, about what this might mean for you. How you can know eternal rejoicing rather than eternal ruin. So God's glory will be revealed through his people to attract the nations to praise him. And God's glory will also be revealed as he fulfills his promises to Abraham. And finally, God's glory will be revealed as he reverses the failures and sorrows of his people. We see that in verses 15 down to verse 22. Just look at some of the failures and sorrows of God's people in these verses. Verse 15, they've been forsaken and hated with no one traveling through. It seems like they've been abandoned. Verse 18, they've known violence and ruin and destruction. This is all of Israel's history but it's not her future. Because verse 15 also says that Israel will be the everlasting pride of all generations. Uh, Verse 17 says that God will make peace her governor and well-being her ruler. The language of verse 16 shows that the nations will no longer trample Israel, uh, but will care for her. Her walls and gates are no longer in ruin, verse 18, but they are ringing with salvation and with praise. I want to thank the music team for serving us so well in this church. They need to keep us, though, on the right track when it comes to our praise and our ringing out of salvation. There is so much nonsense that passes for Christian music these days. And we need to pray for our, ministry, our music ministry team that they will keep us on this path of proclaiming salvation and praise to God. That is what we will be singing about in heaven. The song in Revelation 7, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so we need to support our music ministry team in helping us get ready for heaven. Never get bored of singing of salvation. Never get bored of praising God. This is what rings out from the walls and the gates of Zion. Well, this dramatic change in circumstances proves that the Lord, uh, the mighty one of Jacob, is the Savior and the Redeemer. Israel has gone from ruin, and now she is full of restoration and rejoicing. This has been a theme of much of the book of Isaiah. God's purpose has always been that Israel should know him. Even though Israel strayed, God did not abandon her. You see, God is not only the creator, he is also the sustainer. He is also the savior. There is no God like this God. Among all the gods, only Israel's God is the savior. Israel's past and present and future will testify to this. Israel's future is bright. 
Uh, quite literally, we see that in verses 19 to 20. Uh, we saw at the start of the chapter about Israel's light coming. And now we see exactly what that light will be. It's not a reference to the sun or the moon because verses 19 and 20 uh, say that they will no longer be needed. Uh, Luke's gospel teaches that uh, first century Jews associated the light with the Messiah, the Christ, who is the son of God's righteousness. Uh, For example, we see Simeon take the baby Jesus Christ in his arms and describe him as a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And John's gospel also associates Jesus with these promises. John 1, 9 to 10 says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. This is the light that Isaiah is speaking of. And with this light, according to verse 20, will come the promise that God's people's days of sorrow will come to an end. My friend, if you are in pain in any way today, I want you to know from this passage that there is a day coming when there'll be no more mourning left to be done. I know that doesn't take the pain away right now, but there is a promise here that one day all mourning will be gone. Our weeping may linger now, but permanent joy will come with the arrival of the light, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns. He is the everlasting light that will not be taken away. And along with this certainty, there is a wonderful description in verses 21 and 22 of those who will live in the city. Uh, They are righteous. Uh, They are promised permanent residency. Uh, They're created by God to display His splendor. And they have an influence far beyond their size. Uh, The new Zion, this heavenly city in its eternal state, will have no foes to contend with. Rather, God is going to nurture His people Uh, like a tender shoot, as we see in verse 21, in a vineyard. Jesus develops this imagery by calling himself the vine and his people the uh, the branches of the vine. To belong to Jesus is not just to be planted and nurtured, but to have his life flowing through ours, since apart from him, we can do nothing. You see, God is going to reverse the failures and the sorrows of his people, through the unmissable display of his presence forever. Just now, we are in this waiting time of this blessed hope, this glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But one day that wait is going to be over. The passage ends with the Lord saying, he will do this swiftly. Some Uh, Things in this life seem to be unnecessarily slow. Uh, Answers to prayer seem a long time in coming. But God is going to act swiftly. And he will act when we least expect it. Isaiah chapter 60 is a very future-orientated passage. Because ultimately what we have here is a description of the glory of heaven. 
No doubt John had Isaiah 60 in mind when he describes the new heavens in verse uh, chapter 21 of Revelation. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. What then does Isaiah 60 say for us Christians as we wait? Well, this passage teaches us that people are going to be drawn to God through the witness of his people. Uh, that people will be drawn to God through his people reflecting his glory. That means it matters how we live just now. It matters that our lives increasingly reflect the glory of God. The nations aren't drawn to Israel because Israel is somehow better or more spiritual. They come because of the light. You see, when Christ, the light of the world, shines into his people's lives, the effective response is both repentance and a deep dependence on his grace. The result is people who become more and more like the Lord Jesus and who are used by God to attract men and women from all the nations to the light of Christ, the sovereign and redeemer of his people. The brightness of the presence of God in the person of the Savior will be irresistible. That's what Isaiah 60 teaches us. And God's glory can be seen in us just now in some measure, though not fully as it will be one day. But by God's grace, it still can be seen in us just now. However far God's people fall short of all that God is, if we only reflect his glory in some way, people will come to know him for themselves. You see, although Isaiah 60 is future looking, this prophecy is coming true. It has been coming through true since the time he wrote it. Nations have come to the light. The light has shone out of Jerusalem and they will keep doing so until the Lord Jesus comes back. I read recently that it's always true that a holy church will produce a hungry world. A holy church will produce a hungry world. I love that statement. I want to be a person and part of a church that is so distinctive, so upright, so pure, so holy, that we're such a reflection of God's glory that it attracts people to him. Do you want to be part of a church like that? There are so many ways that churches try to be attractive through the number of programs they run, through the style of uh, their music, through the charisma of the leaders, through feel-good preaching. But our passage this morning doesn't have any of that in mind whatsoever. What will be attractive to this world is a church that reflects the glory 
of God. And too often it doesn't. It looks too much like the world around it as we've compromised in so many areas. How can we more reflect God's glory now that we might attract those who are perishing now? Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 says, So Christ gave himself the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. The church is full of people dealing with the effects of sin. People who are not fully formed into the image of Christ at this time. This church is full of people who've lost their way and don't even know it, who haven't made a connection between their daily problems and the transforming grace of Christ. Everywhere you look, you'll find couples who are struggling to love, parents who are struggling to be patient, children who are attracted to temptation, and friendships who battle the disappointments of imperfect relationships. That is Uh, 100% of the church's membership in every church. The churches where flawed people place their trust in Christ, gather to know and love him better and learn to love each other as we're designed. The church is messy, but it is God's wonderful mess, the place where he radically transforms hearts and lives. So let me ask you, who do you have in your life who speaks the truth in love so that you will grow mature in Christ, so that you reflect God's glory to the nations? And who do you have in your life who you speak the truth in love to, so that they will grow mature in Christ and reflect reflect God's glory to the nations? If you don't have anyone speaking the truth in love to you, can I encourage you to think about joining one of our small groups? If you're a teenager, you can be involved in Rooted. If you're a student or a young worker, you can be involved in YAC. We have growth groups and international fellowship. We have a group during the week for ladies called Time Out. We have men's fellowship Bible studies. Find a group that will help you get beyond the casual small talk onto deeper conversations about your Christian life. The challenges, the battles, the temptations, the joys, the evidences of God's grace in your life. If you feel feel ill-equipped to speak the truth in love, can I encourage you to sign up for the course that David mentioned, the side-by-side course. It's a course that uh, takes us through, as the the, the board says, takes us through the skills we all need to ask for help and give spiritual help to one another, helping us to share our lives with one another in such a way that we become an increasingly God-honoring, interconnected body of believers. There is a very practical way that you can learn more how to reflect God's glory to the nations. We all need each other's help to grow. As we wait for the fulfillment of the vision in Isaiah 60, let us together encourage each other, spur each other on more and more to reflect God's glory 
for the sake of the nations. Let's pray. Oh God, we long for a time uh, when there is no more uh, mourning, no more violence, uh, when days of sorrow will be uh, at an end. Uh, God, uh, we long for a day when your name is no longer blasphemed, uh, but is instead lifted high and exalted. Lord, we long for a day when the nations are proclaiming your praise. Lord, your word says that you're going to do this swiftly. But help us to wait with patience and help us to reflect your glory and in doing so, help us to attract more people to you. Make us brothers and sisters in Christ who spur each other on to better reflect your glory and your beauty. God, this passage envisages the islands looking to you and coming to you. Oh God, would you give us a heart for the islands? Give us a heart for the far-flung places in the remotest parts of this world where the gospel is not being proclaimed. God, would you stir in the hearts of men and women the need to abandon comfort and go and reflect your glory in places where you are not known and your word is not available readily. Lord, we know this is a reality for many parts of Scotland too. So help us to reach the people around us who do not know you. Oh God, you are a glorious God and you're worthy of the praise of all people. Please help us in this task as we await the future glory of heaven. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.